Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, this morning we're starting a brand new series we are calling Unselfish. Um, because what we believe is that God has unselfishly and graciously and generously given to us. And He expects His people to do the same. And so we're going to be talking about that for the next couple of weeks. And uh, I thought I'd just kind of start this morning with just kind of a little informal poll, okay? So um, <clears throat> I'm just going to bite raise of hand, okay? How many would say that I am not really completely satisfied with my cell phone service? Anybody? Yeah, okay, a few of us, okay. Um, how many would say I'm not completely satisfied with the gas mileage that I get on my car? Yeah, okay, a few more. Um, how many would say, um, I'm really not completely satisfied with the status of my job or my career right now? Okay, yeah, a few more hands, okay. Um, how many would say, I am not really completely satisfied with my financial picture these days? Okay, a few more, yeah, yeah, you get more all the time. How many would say, I am really not completely satisfied with my spouse? No, wait, don't, don't. <laughs> Stopped you just in time. <laughs> Back in 1965, a guy named Mick Jagger wrote a song and performed it. For all of you baby boomers, you know the song, I can't get no. You know it. <laughs> I can't get no satisfaction. Here it is, 45 years later, the guy's in his 60s. He's still strutting around in tight pants and he still has not found satisfaction. I mean, his life is a testimony to that whole thing. That song really echoes a theme in one of the books of the Bible. You may not know that. The book of the Bible is called Ecclesiastes. They are the writings of King Solomon, who was king over Israel at the height of its glory. He was the richest, the wisest man of his time. And if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, the whole book, he talks about his search for meaning in life. And chapters 1 and 2 are kind of an introduction to the whole thing. We don't have time to read the whole book this morning. We don't even have the time to read the whole chapters 1 and 2. But we're going to look at just a little section of it because it kind of gives an encapsulated view of what this book is all about. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. This is what the wisest man in the world ever wrote. I thought in my heart... Come now, I will trust, test you with pleasure and find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for man to do under heaven during the few days they have of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. I, thought, I, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born to my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. 
I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took great delight in my work. And this was a reward for my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Thousands of years before Mick Jagger, somebody already made that observation. I did everything I possibly could looking for satisfaction, looking for meaning, looking for purpose, and it was all just chasing after the wind. His quest for satisfaction, his quest for meaning, and all he could come up with was, it's all meaningless. And if King Solomon were alive today, and he were to stand before us, I think, this morning, and tell us his experiences, he would say, this, this is what I know. Let me tell you what I discovered. Let me tell you about the myth of more. Let me tell you how much I gave myself to pursuing more and more and more and more and came to the end and had nothing. And if you'll listen to me this morning, I'll tell you the truth about more. The truth about more is more self-indulgence will never be enough. It will never be enough. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Most recently, um, General Motors has started this money-back guarantee deal where you can buy a brand-new General Motors car and drive it for 60 days, and they, they, they promise you complete satisfaction. And at the end of the 60 days, you are not satisfied with that car, you can turn it back in. Solomon says, I did that for 40 years. I took a 40-year test drive of life looking for that satisfaction. In fact, you read through the book, and over and over again, this one sentence, this one phrase keeps coming up. I devoted myself to. I devoted myself to this. I devoted myself to that. I devoted myself to the pursuit of this. I didn't just dabble in these things or try a little bit of them. I devoted myself to this. And I lived an extravagant life. He says, my life was filled with the best of wines. I filled my life with amusement and enjoyment and party and having fun. In fact, we know as we read through the book of 1 Kings, King Solomon threw lavish parties. Read it. 1 Kings chapter 4. It says in, in a, a, a typical party would take 30 head of cattle plus 100 sheep. 500 bushels of flour to make the cakes and the bread and the pastries that were served. Those are the kinds of extravagant, lavish parties he threw. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And he had the wherewithal to do it. And he did it. says he had a harem. If you read 1 Kings, he had a harem of 1,000 wives and concubines, which might make us question his wisdom. <laughs> I denied myself no pleasure. 
Whatever I wanted, I took. Whatever I wanted to do, I did. If I could think of something and how it could be pulled off, I did it. I gave myself to this for 40 years. And some of us, some of us live our lives seeking satisfaction in things of pleasure. Now, I'm not saying it's not good to have a fun time every once in a while. But there are some people whose all of their life is thrilled. When is the next party? When is the next vacation that I can take? What's the next thrill I can get involved in? What's the next experience? I am living for the weekend. I do my job during the week so I can party all weekend long. And that's what I devote my life to. That's all I'm going to say. Been there, done that. Let me tell you. Doesn't satisfy. Truth about more is self-indulgence will never be enough. And more accomplishments will never be enough. Some people don't look for their satisfaction in the, in, in the pleasure, in, in the pursuit of pleasure. Some of them look for it in, in the pursuit of accomplishments and achievements. How many initial you know, degrees can you get behind your name? What great works can I do that everybody will know? Who can I, how can I be in the who's who of? Solomon said, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. I made reservoirs to water the groves of flourishing trees. He said, I did building projects like you could not believe. And in fact, Solomon was in charge of the building of the original temple. And he said, the temple has been rebuilt a number of times. It has never matched the glory of that original temple. He had a whole palace complex. He didn't have one palace. It was a whole complex. It was at least five buildings. One was living quarters for him. One was living quarters for the daughter of Pharaoh, who was one of his wives. He had one whole building that was just, that's where he enacted law. That's where he heard cases. It was a huge complex. He said, I did this, terraced it off without a bobcat, without a bulldozer. He said, I undertook such great, I undertook aqueducts to, to water these parks that I planted. He said, I did all the things that just people would look at and go, Whoa. All in the pursuit of status, recognition. Because that's where some people look for satisfaction. Status, recognition. And we know that because he says in verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. It wasn't enough to be great. I have to be greater. (laughs) I got to be greater. Comparison. Bigger, better, greater than anyone before me, than anyone who will come after me. Greater by far. Leon Festinger, sociologist, came up with this thing. He's called it the principle of upward comparison. That we have, that we're all kind of ladder climbers, okay? And when it comes to material possessions and income and all those kinds of things, we are always looking up the ladder. How can I move up in that? And that's who we compare ourselves with, the people who are just beyond us, just a little beyond us, and that's what we are striving for. But when it comes to morality and ethics, we compare ourselves with the people below us on the ladder. Interesting. When it comes to our ethics and morality, oh, I'm much better than all these people below me. When it comes to achievement and possessions, oh, I got to just get a little bit higher. 
Solomon says, that's what you're pursuing? Been there, done that. Self-indulgence won't be enough. More accomplishments will not be enough. And more acquisitions will never be enough. He was the richest man of his time. The richest man. He, he's, he's like Bill Gates and Donald Trump combined. Okay? He had more money. He says, I amassed, I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure, not just of kings, the treasure of provinces. We know from 1 Kings, his annual income, anybody want to guess what his annual income was? 25 tons of gold. That was his annual income. It was said of him that silver was flowed so freely, it was like stones, rocks in the street. That's how lavish his lifestyle was. That's how much he had. The greatest challenge of our day is the one that he faced. It is the challenge of materialism. And it's one that every one of us battle on a daily basis. Newer, bigger, better, shinier. More, 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 more. I mean, think about it. Where else in this world do people talk about getting a starter home? We throw that term around here all the time. Oh, it's a great starter home. A little fixer-upper. It's a great starter home. I know people who would be happy to have a home. We talk about starter homes because we know we're always going to be moving up. And there are people in this world that would be happy to just have a home. Nowhere else in this world. And we always want just a little more, not a lot more, a little more, a little more income, a, a, a little more stuff, a little newer car, a little bigger house, and then I will be happy. Just a little bit more, and then I will be happy. If I get more of this, more of that, if I could buy my, then I will be happy. Now, I love my wife, okay? But let's say I gave her the credit card to go on a shopping spree. Buy whatever you want. Just, you know, take out the card and charge it. Buy whatever you would like, as many shoes as you want, as many clothes as you want. Whatever you would like, just go ahead and buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it. Do you think she would be happy? (laughs) We will never know. (laughs) We will never know. Solomon's conclusion is this. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind. Illusory. Always beyond my reach. Nothing I can really grasp. And every one of us believe we will be the exception. We will be the exception. Solomon, you know, he had all, you know, and it didn't satisfy him, but I will be the exception. Just give me a chance. And for thousands of years, people have believed me. That's lie, that lie. I'll be the exception. I will be happy with just a little bit more. What if, what if our desires are telling us something? What if our pursuits for satisfaction and meaning and purpose are really telling us something? 
What if we realize that we are, not just, we are not just physical beings, we are spiritual beings, and we are trying to fill a spiritual need with a physical reality? What if, what if the desires of our heart were placed there by God, not to pursue stuff, but to pursue Him? What if there is another way to live? Scripture says there is. Paul talks about it in his letter to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 4. says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of our acquaintance with, your acquaintance with the gospel, and I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in need in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches. In Christ Jesus. He says there is another way to live. And the way to live is contentment. I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Now, contentment is not our default mode. That's why he says, I have learned this. It is something to be learned. And in fact, he says it twice. This is a learning process. How do I learn this? How do I learn? How do I learn contentment? Because I am so tired of pursuing stuff that doesn't matter. How can I learn this contentment? A couple of ideas. First one is this. Distinguish your needs from your wants. It says, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you live on bare, you know, bare subsistence. But I'm saying just get to know the difference between wants and needs. There is a difference. Honestly, do middle schoolers really need a cell phone? Oh, I heard the excuses. It might be an emergency. You might need to get in touch with me. Come on. Come on. Who are you kidding? It's a status thing. Your kids got to have a cell phone. Middle schoolers with cell phones. I was lucky if my mom gave me a quarter or a dime. It was back in those days to use a pay phone. There's an emergency. Here's the dime. Give me a call. Do cars really need 
heated seats. And windshield wipers on their headlights. The light can't get through unless there's wiping, you know. Really, honestly. Do we need a TV in every room? Do we need a TV? I'm just asking. We don't have a we we have we have such a hard time distinguishing wants from needs and wants so easily become needs and if you never make that distinction you will be constantly pursuing more because you can never get enough of something you don't need you can't it's impossible to get enough of what you don't need and we have an advertising industry that keeps telling us that wants are needs. It is an uphill battle, let me tell you, folks. It is swimming against the current of our culture. And I think maybe, just maybe, one of the good things about this whole recession is we begin to realize we could cut back if we really needed to. We just don't want to. We don't need to. So we live in excess. But if we really had to tighten our belts, we could do that. Jesus said it this way, your father knows what you need before you ask him. He cares. He knows. He supplies, he said. This Tuesday, I had the opportunity to go to Uganda again for another short-term mission trip. And I so look forward to these trips. This will actually be my third time. But I remember the first time that I took this trip. And and you you meet people who who live. I I can't describe it. if, If they have a home, it is a round mud hut that is smaller than this stage. And it maybe has a curtain to divide the living area from the sleeping area and nobody gets their own bedroom. And yet, you know, there's some of the happiest people I have met on earth. And I remember coming home from that first trip. We got home the day before Thanksgiving and I got home and I got up Thursday morning and I picked up the Thursday, that, that Thursday Thanksgiving morning paper and you know what's in the Thanksgiving paper? All the Christmas ads. And I remember going through every one of those going, I don't need that. 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 I don't. There's something in me that says, I want it. But I don't need it. You can never get enough of what you don't need. So here's an idea. Let the Joneses win. And and believe me, I am talking to myself as much as anyone else here. Because I keep losing sight of that. If you are not budgeting your money, start with a budget. Know where your money is going. Some of us don't even know that. A bill comes, we pay it. We have no idea what our financial picture looks like. Just make a budget. And see where your money really is 
going. Here's another one. Practice intentional generosity. Intentional generosity. Paul's ministry, he said, was enabled in the very, very beginning when no one else shared in helping him. His whole ministry was dependent upon the Philippians' generosity and they supplied what he needed to carry on the work of God. And he writes to them now, later on, after many years of their support, and he says, the gifts that you sent are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. All throughout biblical history, it has always been God's plan to do his work through his people and their giving. And, and sometimes because, you know, finances in the church get tight too. And people say, well, maybe we could do this fundraiser or that fundraiser or another fundraiser. And yeah, we could, but that's not God's plan. God's plan is God's people give back to God and his work in this world. That has always been his plan. It's the only plan he has. We'd like to do some other fancy thing, but that's his plan. And it has been that way throughout history. And we have a natural resistance to it. We do. I know. I know all of the arguments that are going through your head right now. Yeah, but you don't know my financial picture. I know those arguments because I've said them myself. We have a natural resistance to this. That's why Paul said it is something to be learned. And the way that God taught his people to do it was with something called the tithe. It's percentage giving. 10%. That's what tithe means. And that's really, really important to understand because sometimes I hear people say, well, I tithe $20 a week. 20 is 10% of... Okay, somebody here can do math. 200. You make $200 a week? Whoa. How do you live? We use the word so fuzzy and so nonchalantly. It is a very specific number. 10% of your income to God. To God's work in this world to the furtherance of his kingdom so that people can come to know and love him. 10%. Understand, it is also a priority. God doesn't get the leftovers. It's not like you're giving him a tip. It's off the top. The biblical principle is the first fruits of your harvest, that first check that you write, goes to God's work. Do you know? Because I just thinking about it this week. Do you know that if every family in our church, everyone who calls Northgate their church home, if everyone increased their giving just 1%, so like if you're giving nothing now, if you just made the 1% jump, or you're giving 10% now and you made it 11 or you're giving 15 and you made it 16, whatever it is, if everybody in our church family, every family, every household in our church family just decided to increase my giving 1%, do you know that we would have somewhere between $12,000 and $15,000 more a month to do ministry in this church? Just 1%. 
Think of 10%. What we could do. How we could do God's work better. How we could reach out. How we could help the poor. How we could minister in our communities. How we could do God's work in this world. Because here's something else about it. When you do that, percentage, priority, giving. When you do that, not only does it enable God's work, but it changes your heart. It changes your heart. Paul wrote, uh, Luke wrote, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than receive. There is a blessing that comes from giving. I'm not talking about a Ponzi scheme. Multi-level marketing. I am just saying, when you give, there's a number of blessings that come your way. One is a changed heart, which is maybe the most important one. And to know that you're participating in God's work in this world. And you're helping someone else who is less fortunate than you. Those are blessings, folks. It's a heart issue. It really, really is. Heard one preacher. sells his congregation. Okay, pull out your wallets. Hold them up high. This is the temple of 21st century worship. Then he has them hand it to the person next to him and take, a, take an offering. We're not going to do that this morning. <laughs> it's a heart issue. It really is. It really is. Which comes to the third thing. It's really about who you trust. It's transferring your trust off of your resources, off of your ability to provide for yourself, and put your trust in Jesus Christ. It is a matter of faith. It is a matter of trust. Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor, in instructing his congregation. He said, tell the rich who, to hope in God, not in their uncertain riches. And if there's anything this recession has told us, riches are uncertain. Put their hope in God, not in their uncertain riches. God richly gives us everything to enjoy. He is the only one that is truly worthy of my trust. The only one truly worthy of my faith, my hope. Paul wrote the Philippians, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Not in my bank account, not in anything else. Through him who gives me strength. And if you really have some doubts about this, if you don't know if God is trustworthy with this aspect of your life, listen to what Paul wrote to the Roman church. He said, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If you have doubts about the goodness and the generosity and the mercy and the grace of God, look at the cross. Because if he would do that for us, if he would be so generous as that for us, if he would give so sacrificially as that for us, will he not take care of the little stuff? It really is a hard issue. And I know maybe if you're a guest here this morning, I know one of the biggest complaints people have about the church is they're always talking about money. Well, we don't. You just happen to hit the right day. 
But it's really not about money. Your money shows your heart. And God really doesn't want your money. What he wants is your heart. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.